That was quick. Ooh. We're live. We didn't have a countdown because I've messed up every single thing. Right, so hello. She and <laughs> I've messed up on? the. Uh, yeah, we are on. I've oh. completely. I've had so okay. many technical difficulties. I, I see again. Shores in the uh, in the chat. Shores, can you tell me whether I am left only again? And I want to fix. We're going to fix it live. I am. I am left only. I'm. I'm hearing it myself. You're left. You're. You're just left eared. What is I, the problem? I don't understand your... what is going on with these. How come? Hmm. So how does it uh, come across to people? It's it's literally just in the left ear for them. That's it. If they've got headphones. Say it again. So they hear it as if if they're listening with headphones, they hear you only in the left ear. Yeah, only in the left. But only if they've got headphones. Only if they have headphones. But I'm fine. Yeah. That is really weird. It's 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 not though because it's it's literally my setup. So I'm using uh, it's called a focus right, and there's a way to to configure it, and for some reason it just doesn't like. I, I what's weird is the settings don't seem to stick. So I I fixed it, and then I'm looking now, and it appears that it's gone back to what it was. So it doesn't like stick, which is really this is really freaking annoying. It's a really compelling viewing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Do you know how to fix it? I think we should before we like get into stuff. Okay, go on then. How do you how do you fix it? Well, I'm sitting here and listening to the uh, the output, and hopefully, well, listening to yourself. I'm listening to myself. Yeah. Excellent. But do you know? Do you have a, a clue as to what might be the problem? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 some it's one of the settings. No apologies for being late. I um, I managed to plug in my computer this morning, and I was sure it would have been charged by now, but it wasn't. So we had total battery drain, and and um, so I was wait, waiting and waiting for my um for the Apple icon to appear. Finally, everything is Isabella's fault. I want to. I just want to say that. And also, apologies for not doing this podcast for a very long time, but um, lots of things happened. I got a part-time job, hybrid weird job, which took up like a lot of onboarding for the first few weeks. And then I got really ill. So I was not really, really ill. I just had flu, but it was, nobody wanted to, I would not have been a good thing to watch <laughs> for the last three weeks. So um, I guess that's why we haven't done it for a while, which is annoying because we wanted to really do it ritually. <laughs> so um, have you sorted your problem? You know, that the ear yeah, one. No, not I mean, the goal. Different. The goal is. The goal is to uh, to do this every week, and I'm. It's still just left right. This is so stupid. I blame Isabella because uh, it was too long between last show and this one. So when I fixed it, it unfixed. So it's your fault, Isabella. I was yeah. Well, I'll take that. <laughs> Lots of things. 
Oh, my fault. Well, anyway, um, I didn't tweet it. I didn't tweet because I was distracted. Should I tweet? Yeah, I'll go find... ahead. Uh, tweet it, and let's uh, let's go here. Here's the um, current. Yeah. And then we'll, we'll we'll start again. So we've just got diehards at the moment. <laughs> right. Let me. Uh, so we'll tweet. I'll I will tweet. Come join. No, today we're talking about uh, the Matt Taibbi Schellenberger testimony. We're going to talk about the Trump arrest. Uh, we're going to talk about the SVB bank failure. Uh, Bitcoin's price. Uh, ridiculous stuff going on right now. Contagion. Just come join Johnson for me talking. Um, this is how now. <laughs> now you get an insight to how I uh, script my tweets. <laughs> um, chat to discuss contagion. The sequel plus what happened. All right, guys. Everyone, I'm sorry we're uh, we're taking a little long here, but we gotta. We're getting it ready. Technically, we're not. We needed to come out and like test some things. So, what the hell is going? What the hell is going on? What's that? Was that um thing from Ghostbusters? Cats and dogs. That's a that's a old movie, old person movie. What's the quote? Cats and dogs. Moving. Um, human sacrifice. That's it. <laughs> human sacrifice. Cats and dogs. Dogs and cats. Were wrong way round. Testing. Dogs and cats living together. Mass hysteria. him about the Twinkie. Okay. Tweeted. Tweeted. So now. Hello. Uh, should we um, do the intro just for fun whilst you're still missing? Yeah, let's right? do it. Okay, let me find. I really, sh I, I should really give you the controls because I am not a good multitasker. <laughs> uh, we could do that at some point okay here we go here's his we might as well do the intro come on
Very good. Very nice. And here we are. So, welcome back. It's the Blind Spot Podcast. We've been away for a while, but we um, finally found a, an opportunity to regroup during what is what feels like the start of something really big. Um, and we're going to be talking about contagion, financial markets, Silicon Valley Bank, but also the stuff that I think, given the name of the podcast, people might have missed during the last two weeks because they've been distracted by everything else. But anyway, nice to see you all. And hello, Joseph. How are you? How's how's very uh, well? And I'm I'm coming at you in only your left ear, uh, for good reason. Uh, <laughs> mainly because I haven't figured out how to broadcast in both yet. <laughs> I thought I had it figured out, but it's not. It's it's clearly not working. So uh, you're like we're You're just a um. You know how you can only turn left. Right. Oh, that's true. I remember that. That was a great movie. Yeah. You're not uh, an ambi will... Not an ambi ambi podcaster. Yeah. I promise we'll have it fixed next episode. Right. So, what what should we start with? I mean, it does feel like 2008 all over again, right? Yeah. <laughs> You've got I think so. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So, um what were you doing in in 2008, the original uh, well, that was the year that the Vikings, the Vikings were playing uh, and nearly won the Super Bowl. So, uh, or oh no, two thousand. That was nineteen ninety eight. Two thousand eight. I was in college. I, I wasn't doing much. Uh, that would have been the year that what Barack Obama won. Was that Barack Obama? I believe so. Yes. Oh. So it was a handover from from Bush to. I was uh, yeah. I was I was at college at that time, and I was watching uh, a bunch of. Uh, well, half the campus was whining and weeping and screaming and yelling, and the other half was uh, was ecstatic. And it wasn't half; it was five percent were ecstatic, and the other half was uh, well, no, sorry, ninety five percent were ecstatic, five percent were sad, which was the inverse of when Bush was elected. I, I watched that too, which was very funny. I was at CNBC at the time, and um, I, I remember it very vividly because I was sent to like stand with anchors outside AIG building and. And, you know, you know, when you send anchors to an out like um, a random backdrop and like they, there's no actual reason why they're there because they never talk to anyone coming in and out of the building. Right. They're just there for the backdrop, literally. And um, so you're right. standing there, you know, with a nice backdrop. And these days probably you could do it with a green screen. And um, but yeah, so I recall that very well. And um, at the time, I think what was interesting about um, 2008 is that nobody was really like familiar with how central banks work. So when all these mm -hmm. facilities came out, it was all big confusion. And the anchors, I think, were very kind of naive about it. And in fact, I left CNBC in October and I went to the FT. And my parting note to everybody, I put a nice, I swear to God, I had to do the data myself. I literally went on the Federal Reserve website and I took every data point and I put it into an old, like, old school Excel spreadsheet to make one of right. those graphs. Um, because no one had the data on the Fed balance sheet because it was just not something anyone was watching. And um, so my parting email from CNBC, I was like, you know, the Fed balance sheet had just gone. And um, I put that in my goodbye note. And now, obviously, everyone's watching the Fed balance sheet. But it, it is it is interesting that like the Fed balance sheet has become a thing. And, uh, you know, when I was in when I was in college, it was the libertarians that were screaming about uh, sort of the increasing debt and everything else and it's interesting to me that that's become kind of a main topic over the last few years since since i graduated i mean it's like 12 14 years now we've talked about it but i do remember 14 years ago nobody was talking about the debt 
Nobody was talking about the balance sheets. Nobody was talking about the Fed in general. It was sort of a, a, a only libertarian focused uh, discussion. Yeah, but we want this podcast to be information um, dense, um, signal dense. What, what's, this, what's the phrase? Signal High dense. Signal yeah. High signal, yeah. low noise. Um, so really, like, what, you know, I'm in the thick of it here. I'm a core finance person. From a Bitcoiner perspective, how do you read the room in terms of how it's all gone down? Um, I'm just well, curious. I, you know, I, I think what I'm realizing the, is... in the, the podcast is to bridge the divide. Yeah, in the Silicon Valley... Uh, the Silicon Valley collapse. I don't think a lot of Bitcoiners know exactly what's going on. I think that there's a lot of confusion. Uh, I mean, the Wall Street Journal talked a little bit about uh, how the Fed is managing this. And they I think I don't remember what they called it, it was like a funny, like funny accounting or something like that. There's this is one of those uh, those moments where, you know, like if you're not a steeped, if you're not a person steeped in economics, you kind of look at it and you're kind of like wondering how it is uh, they're accomplishing these bailouts, because this is a different the tools they're using now are new tools. They're not, these are not the types of stuff that they've done for, you know, we're not just a quantitative easing or something like that, that we've like figured out and understood now for 12 or 13 years. This is like a new set of things they're doing. And uh, I think Bitcoiners are skeptical of anything the government does, particularly in the heat of a crisis. Right. Right. And this is a weird crisis. You know, it, the duration risk stuff uh, seems a bit obvious in retrospect, it is and, obvious. Yeah, it seems it seems very obvious, and it's it's strange that this wasn't really foreseen until like last week. I, th I think is well, at least foreseen. my. This is this is where there's a bit of fake news because from the moment they started QE back in 2009, they knew that this duration thing was going to be a risk because they they took rates down to near zero, right. and they expanded the balance sheet. And for a long time, and I remember this very vividly. Um, there was dialogue about, well, how are you going to man manage the exit? How are you going to manage the exit? Because they, they knew there would be this weird complexity in 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 taking the liquidity that you've put in out, and um, and I think I think that's that's what what's what's interesting is that people have forgotten that that discussion happened quite you know actively. But with, in Q, the with QE, they they wound QE down fairly uneventfully. Um, well, no, they didn't. I mean, so the balance sheet is still really expanded. So they only just started sure. doing a bit of Q QT. And really, we never felt the full whammy of it because Bank of Japan and the Asian central banks were like expanding as we were contracting. So overall, global liquidity was kind of balanced. Um, and what has happened since is that I think um, really there was a there was a kind of I, I can't I, I don't want to say stuff I don't know but there was something that triggered an actual contraction in so, the last few months so you don't you don't think mm -hmm. they ever really uh tightened they they did in the so when you've got this expanded balance sheet of of liquidity um you know you have we live in a we live in a global financial system, right? So you can you can kind of teleport other people's liquidity for you, and and for a long time. I mean, how much do you know about the swap lines? Do you want me to talk? Do you want yeah, to? Do, ahead, how, do, how deep do you want to go? Go go as deep as you want. How deep I, think, I think other people other people I enjoy the learning. I'll just okay, so, I'll, I'll go to sleep. So back in two thousand and eight, one of the big problems was that um, the U.S. banks 
had exposures to European banks because European banks were funding all their funky subprime debt uh, holdings and assets with dollar, overnight dollars, three month dollar, like LIBOR type uh, euro dollar funding um, that was coming from America, right? And this was the over like offshore um, funding uh, situation, right? So when 2008 happened and the bailouts happened indirectly, a load of that money ended up going to Europe to bail out the European banks because they were the most exposed because they, so there was this massive kind of like dollar shortage because of what was going on. And the Fed belatedly realized this, which is when they issued these swap lines. And at first they were going to be fairly limited, but then they kept rolling them and rolling them. And now we've just got permanent swap lines. So the swap lines originally in the peak. So what that means is that a central bank like the Bank of England or, or a central bank like the ECB can go to the Fed and swap euros for dollars and have effectively access to the Federal Reserve window to print dollars. Because like the ECB can only print euros and the Bank of England can only print sterling, right? But the, the liabilities in the system in, 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 in Europe were dollar denominated and there was a massive FX issue. So when, mm. when there was a shortage of dollars, dollar kept going up, the subprime securities were going down in value. There's a big gap in the valuation and they had to they had to meet a lot of like margin calls and they were squeezed out of dollars and there wasn't enough dollars and that's why like you saw LIBOR rates going completely insane and the central banks then trying to suppress the LIBOR which only we we only found out about that many years later so um the swap lines kind of were probably the most important tool that came out in 2008 and they bailed out the rest of the global system. And at first they were the main Western central banks, but they also did kind of second tier, like G G20 banks as well. Since then, they've rolled back a lot of those swap lines and it's only the main banks that have still have access to them. But it is a significant deal when those when you see a central bank going to the window to borrow dollars. And that so has what, been happening. So, so with the duration, if, with, if the duration risk was a known problem, and the outcome was expected. Were they just waiting for banks to uh, collapse? Or did they know about yeah. when this would happen? And, and was this more like an example of the Fed stepping in early compared to late, like after everything's collapsed? So it's, it's, hard for, it's hard to say. I think everyone gets kind of bogged down in the textbook kind of concept of how things should happen. And central bank is a continuously kind of like um, surprise when things don't go as per the textbook, right? And so when you speak to central bankers, as I have been doing this past week, um, they're like, well, this duration risk was obvious. The, the, the bank should have like hedged it. It should have been all hedged. It's like the it's banking 101. And it is banking 101. And in, in theory, it is hedged. But in reality, it isn't. Because A, when post 2008, we, you know, created all this very complex regulations to try and make sure GFC never happened again. Um one of the exceptions, so essentially mark to market became the norm for all trading books at banks, which meant which means that if you if you have like securities in there, you're out of the money on them, you have to book them on your income statement. Whereas but but there was an exception for securities that are not held in the trading book. So if you held right. them to maturity, you were exempt from having to mark to market. And that was very strategic. And when I was speaking to Nuria Rubini last week, 
he was saying it's kind of crazy that they allowed this oversight to happen. But when I spoke to traders who were interest rate traders who were um, trading dur during the GFC, they said, well, actually, it's quite normal practice not to hedge because it's very difficult to do so. And when you're holding to maturity and if you're a diversified banks, bank in theory, you don't really need to because, you so, know, so you're the, not. The presumption was they had the deposits to cover the duration. Yes, exactly. And if you are a fairly diversified bank, in theory, like you should be OK. Silicon Valley Bank's problem was that it had such as, you know, concentrated exposure to the tech, tech industry, which means um, well, which meant that when the VC money stopped coming in, um, there was a general kind of contraction in their deposits. And it wasn't a deposit flight. It wasn't like the Silicon Valley people going, oh, we're scared of like, you know, keeping our money at, um, at Silicon Valley Bank. It was just natural like contraction. There wasn't as much money coming in to, you know, fund new ventures or whatever. And, and you know, second, um, you know, all, all the kind of pipeline of, of, of funding had dried up and this contracted the pool and there wasn't, there wasn't anything they could do other than, um, you know, diversify beyond tech because, you know, the tech sector is currently underwater and that's the key problem there. So that in theory shouldn't have happened anywhere else. And I think belatedly they realize, and also <laughs> I think it's quite interesting that they, you know, they had this huge deposit inflow during uh, the pandemic and, and that was by like, in some ways you can't blame, I mean, you can blame Silicon Valley Bank, but in some ways you can't because the whole point of QE was to encourage banks to take risk because they weren't taking risk. And there was this like, oh, my God, they won't lend to people, blah, blah, blah. And there's two that. main ways that you can take risk, which is one is like lending to poorer quality people. And the other is going up the duration path, a.k.a. lending for longer and hoping, you know, things are in 20 years time the same as they are today. And Silicon Valley Bank got flooded with these deposits and they really had no nothing else to do because as well as being kind of forced to take risk through this extra liquidity, GFC post, you know, Dodd-Frank and Basel III came on the stage and were telling banks, actually, we don't want you to take risk. You've got to be super like over collateralized and you're going to have a give you a, um, a massive um, leverage uh, le um, LCR, which is a leverage. Oh God leverage coverage ratio um, to constrain how much you can, uh, liquidity coverage ratio, sorry, which constrains um, how much you can hold, which is not liquid. You have to have your assets in high quality liquid assets, HQLA, and, and then you have to have a specific amount of capital set aside for risk-weighted assets, et cetera. And that constrained banks so what were they supposed to do they had to put the money somewhere and they put it up the duration because that was supposed to be safe treasuries right treasuries well, and, MBS. So, so with the solution of, for silicon valley bank would they would they have had to put less in those high duration securities or would playing in that market you know is was that dangerous at all what else i mean what other choice did they have well, they didn't have many choices. Uh, 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 the only other choice they had was lending to more VC, like more startups. So, so, so right? is, Isabel, does this break our notion of how banks work then? Or what, what like, you know, because like this is well, sparking conversations in have... Bitcoin with people like Caitlin Long who are obsessed with no reserve banking. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, there's so much to talk about because fundamentally, and I wrote about reserve. this a lot. 
full reserve banking? Full reserve banking is a bit of, okay, so in my opinion, this is you know specifically my opinion. So when we went to zero rates and we went to negative rates after that, I wrote a lot of pieces, I, I wrote many pieces even, um, explaining that this was effectively the death of banking because banks can't make money in a negative yield stroke ne negative carry way. If you're having to pay people to borrow from you, that is a mental business model. It's just, it's not going to work, right? Right. And so yeah. banks generally were put uh, like into no-win scenario for the, for the entire period of like the low interest rate, Right. Um, in, in environment, they were turned into really boring utility banks, essentially, that couldn't do anything very risky. The only way they could make money was through their market making departments, their advisory M&A and um, kind of investment banking, maybe some trade you right. know, related financing. But on the whole, the stuff that they were doing back in 2008 they couldn't really do too much of it because, you know, they were genuinely kind of in a situation where, you know, if you, there wasn't a risk-free arbitrage in lending just to conventional right. people. And that created a negative NIM, net interest margin. That is like the key metric in banking, right? And so when, when rates started to go back up, there was a big hoopla because the banks started suddenly making money again and mm -hmm. in a relatively risk-free risk rate what risk-free way because nim had come back so they could borrow short lend long and just sit there and make nice money and this upset a lot of people because suddenly they were very profitable again and there was little like profitable banks which which is actually really interesting to me like wh why are we so against banks being profitable so i was privy to these discussions in in many different kind of banking um arenas and the bankers obviously were like, well, no, you have to let us be profitable because if we're not profitable, we can't, you know, we've just come out of an era where we couldn't make any money. And now we're facing this opportunity where we can make money and we need and we need to make it because with interest rates going up, chances are this is a temporary situation because credit will, you know, there will be credit de deterioration on the horizon. So we need to buffer up. So we're not taking these profits for like ourselves as greedy bankers. We're buffering it up we're like building equity and and we're kind of getting resilient for when credit deterioration happens that sort of thing happened in the oil markets post-covid as well where now oil companies that were profitless during covid were being blamed for like taking some profits after the fact exactly which which they need so by then, the way but then we had um we had all this like political pressure to w charge a windfall tax on all the banks and they were very upset about it and they didn't want a tax. And I think nobody in the political classes really understood what, what the banks were facing, which was, you know, this was like the calm before the storm. Imagine like, you know, um, I mean, in retrospect, you're trying to charge a windfall tax to banks that were about to go under. Right. <laughs> it's kind of insane. Um, so that's where we are now. And this duration risk it was a known known, but the question is, where is the hedge? Where where is it in the system? Some people will have hedged, and Credit Suisse, which is obviously the bank that's in trouble at the moment, um, ironically is one of the few banks that supposedly is hedged, um, and yet it's being run on. Um, is, so is for that, me, is that, is that the issue at Credit Suisse? Is is it just the run? 
Because, I mean, they're not like a, a, a giant depository institution, are they? I thought they were more like, you know, an, an iBank. Well, they used to be an iBank. They used to be quite a, like, quite a naughty iBank. They did a lot of like crazy <laughs> banking deals. They were involved right. in uh, bad debts in, in with tuna bonds. And they were involved in green, uh, funding Greensill, which was a crazy, crazy, um, well, I don't, it was pop. Yeah, it was, it was an think it was an Australian Lex Greensaw anyway Lex Greensaw for some reason there was a UK angle I've, I've forgotten it all now but he right. he was like a it was a trade financing thing and then they were involved in Archegos which was a big he uh, hedge fund that went down and they anyway whenever there was a scandal in the last five six years Credit Suisse seems to be behind it and they also yeah. were banking a lot of like russians and things like that that's, that's right so i never they, thought of them as the bad bank because like after 2008 credit suisse really seemed to be sitting pretty after the the last banking crisis and it was one of the few that got away but this is the other key thing so after the crisis happened in switzerland the swiss authorities became obsessed with this idea of not bailing out non-swiss people and so in their like post crisis resolution um, planning, they decided that we have to kind of ring fence all the Swiss stuff away from the international stuff, which is why Credit right. Suisse became this weird bifurcated bank with an operating code that effectively is the Swiss part and then a holding code, which is the international part. Okay. And this completely messed up the waterfall. So... It, it basically sent the signal, like, if you're a foreign investor, if you bank at Credit Suisse, you're going to be, like, last in line to get your money back because every it's Switzerland first, yeah? It's literally the definition of banking Switzerland first. Like, that, that is what it was. And that's why um, stability issue, because they got really clipped by all these scandals. They had to pay lots of fines. And the regulators have basically been saying you, you just have to be a boring bank. So they've been in the midst of a restructuring for years and they were, you know, planning to spin off their investment bank for ages. This is, so none of this is new and the market should have priced it all in. And frankly, it's been like a slow motion train wreck for a very, very long time. And it has become, as a result, I call it the core TradFi equivalent of Teva. Right. It's literally like people say it's got all these funky assets and they go, no, no, we trust us. We really don't. <laughs> um, and it's massively over collateralized now. It's got the biggest like liquidity buffers out there because it has to prove that it's, you know, strong, even because for some reason its reputation is completely toxic. So this is very much a branding story more than anything. Because Interesting. fundamentally, when you look at, I'm very surprised that given the, the Swiss government the other day on Wednesday came out Thursday morning really early and backstopped um, Credit Suisse, I'm very surprised that sure. that wasn't enough to suppress the whole thing. I mean, you're literally running on Switzerland now. Do, do you think they're going to nationalize Credit Suisse? Oh, yeah. So, so basically, before... You know, this is all changing very quickly. And last I looked, um, I was quite optimistic. I thought, I genuinely thought Credit Suisse would pull through. I thought it would be like the bank that just can't die. It's like, 
it's like that guy in Seven, the film Seven, where he's keeping him mm -hmm. alive. Like that's for me what what Credit Suisse was. Um, and I thought it would the deal they did was very clever in the sense that they offered it's a fifty billion Swiss franc covered loan, um, oh, interesting. which means de facto full reserve banking. <laughs> so they so the money they're borrowing from the Fed has to be fully collateralized, and they have to. Um, uh, and they said that they would use the, the that financing to buy back their own bonds. And huh. this is very clever because if their bonds are trading subpar, they immediately book a profit from it. Because if you can buy back your own debt at half the price that you took it out, I mean, it's it's genius. It's like a... <clears throat> It's a it's a winning formula. And even despite the fact, I mean, the analogy I gave is it's like you've got a reckless student who's taken out like a million dollar loan and they can't pay it. And the bank is kind of calling and saying, you're going to default. And there's like a third party who's offering to buy it. Like the bank thinks that the, 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 the loan is dead. And there's a third party who comes in and says, I'll buy it off you for like cents on the dollar. Right. right. And at that point, the parents come in and they're like, no, no, we'll buy a cent. <laughs> and then, well, you know, I've thought about this. It, it reminds me, it makes me think of like in America, you know, we have these debt collecting agencies that buy debt. I, I almost feel like the most American thing to do would be to start your own debt collection agency and then go and buy your own debt at like 10 cents on the dollar from like a hospital. You know, well, it's, like it's, it sounds it's, a little bit like that. Like you're. Yeah, it's that's yeah. crazy. It's a classic move, and it makes loads of sense because you can buy it back and cancel the debt and immediately book a profit. And if you can, you know, doesn't that, that, I mean, doesn't that cause moral hazard? Like, if you're able to is buy your own hazard? debt back, no, you know that that's an option. Yeah, but if well, are, is that what they're doing? They're buying it in the market, or are they like being like, is it a callback of sorts? No, it's they're buying it in the market. They've given a window where they're like giving an offer to buy it back, right? And in theory, this should have like a like pushed their debt back to par, and B, it should have squeezed out any shorts and helped to like boost the value of their debt. Um, but it didn't. So I I genuinely thought like the Thursday the, the stock did go up originally forty percent, um, which is a little bit misleading because it's a small number, and so forty percent of a small number is still a small number. But but the um, I, I thought that would suppress like the bleed also because it's Switzerland. It's really hard to change banks in Switzerland. It's just not the same as like maybe people have two accounts, but you know, if you're at Credit Suisse, chances are like it would take a day for you to onboard at a minimum to UBS. Right. So I, I, it's one of the more frictionally friction focused um, banking centers in Europe. And so I thought I was quite surprised. I thought that would be, I thought that would pretty much nail <laughs> nail the problem um, in the bud, but it didn't. And so now we're hearing that actually, you know, and actually this is the key thing is like if even Switzerland, like Switzerland, which is like the home of gold and guns and booby trapped yeah, well, no, explosive we, we mines it. that we like, can. you know, or. <laughs> all the cheese and all, all the chocolate, even if like the, the country that is most prepared for Armageddon cannot backstop one of its banks. I can't even, I can't believe it's Switzerland, the home of chocolate 
would 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 have would allow us to have. I mean, I mean, it's true. I mean, like they are they are kind of viewed as the banking capital of the world in some sense, Isabel. But like, I I feel like during the like uh, 2008 financial crisis and the subsequent fallouts and all of the reporting requirements that America has sort of uh, forced on the world, it almost feels like Swiss banking as an institution is dead in a sense. And this is kind of the the inevitable collapse of it. And it's interesting to me that the contagion seems to begin in America and it goes into the sort of global uh, pandemic type level uh, fiscal financial contagion and ends up hitting uh, the Swiss banks, which to me, they're just they're just not that important anymore. Like I don't think the Swiss banks have been. Josh, you're one hundred percent right, and that is yes, I'm right. I've been trying to communicate that, and um, and you know the Swiss are just not what they used to be because they're not secretive anymore. But but even even worse than that, I think that the the rug or the the blanket's been pulled off Swiss banking, um, UBS, uh, Credit Suisse. Like these are not good acting banks. These are not banks that have like been good players in in a global uh, banking ecosystem in a world where you're trying to keep money out of the hands of drug dealers and terrorists, et cetera. Like these, these have been banks that have like banked people that in a civilized world, uh, the, we, we, not we, but governments have decided should not be banks. So they've kind of been the banks that have been end running and backstopping, uh, the, the dark market type stuff. And frankly, I like that, that I like they're canceling those people because then that money flows into Bitcoin and makes me rich. But that's right. That's exactly. Switzerland was supposed to be the home of neutral, like neutrality. Like it was the new, the most famous neutral country in World War Two, right? Um, not the only one, but it was the most famous, right? So um, the the point is that you're exactly right. That neutrality has been nipped in the bud, and from now on, that has undermined banking because banking, the Swiss bank business model was totally dependent on Swiss neutrality. And KYC, AML, all that stuff. It's well, it, we, there is no private banking. There, there's been a global there's been a global reduction in neutrality. I mean, like look what we did with Russian bonds. Look at the banking system. Like there is no more neutral money. It doesn't exist anymore. I mean, this is it's a really interesting world to live in. Where 20 years ago, money looked a certain way, and I think with the advent of digital, uh, well, just a digital economy, we've realized that like anonymity, uh, neutrality we can force it out digitally. We didn't have that option before. And I think, I think what's being like sort of again, uncovered the blanket's been taken off the cover, the cover sheet's been ripped off is that the global, the global elites don't want uh, neutrality in when it comes to finance and money. I think that they want to have a level of control and they're exercising it in ways I think that are really, I, I want to say dubious, but they're not, it's, it's not so much that it's dubious. It's that it's outcomes are unknown. Well, the last time we had this was in World War II, when um, actually we had massive economic sanctions and um, there was no neutrality of money. And there were a few kind of um, interlocutors, like there was Portugal, which which became quite an important FX center, and Switzerland, obviously. But um, But then after the war, we did encourage a bit more neutrality. But the Cold War... And, and and actually, it was very interesting with the Cold War because, in theory, there were like sanctions and not sanctions, but there was like it was frowned upon definitely to do trade with like the USSR. 
There were countries that were conduits like Ireland, who was neutral during the Cold War. But, but in reality, in practice, because dollars were physical, they flowed through the banking system all the way from Vietnam, where they were spent like during the Vietnam War, and they ended up in Russia and Swiss banks. And um, that that was the seeding of the euro dollar markets in many ways. Well, that that offshore you, you, dollar capital. Let me assert something here: Is the end of neutral money and neutral finance? Uh, it, I I think that the time that that really begins is when Russia cancels the bonds to LC, LTCM in the nineties. No, well, in I mean, maybe I mean, depends. The the reason I say is because we've like, never seen like a Look, well, think the, about it the, this way. Like, during communism, it was the dollar in some ways, the dollar, the dollar's neutrality helped to bring down communism because yeah, 100%. What, what did like corrupt KGB people want? They didn't want rubles. cigarettes. They wanted, they wanted the dollar. Yeah, but they also got paid in dollars and everyone handled the black market. And that brought kind of cap like ruthless capitalism into the communist system. It was the dollar. And um, and that's what kind of like undermined the whole system in many ways. Do you think that's what we're but, doing in Ukraine? How? What's? Why would you say that? Because we're shipping a, a ton of money into Ukraine, and it's going to cause uh, Ukrainian what's it called the kroner or whatever it's called. Uh, they're going to peg it. Uh, there's going to essentially what the Ukraine war is going to do is increase dollar hegemony. And in a part of the world that we have not really had a lot of dollar hegemony. So to me, like that, that to me has been essentially the purpose of the Ukraine war. Uh, it's not an oil play. It's a dollar play. It gets dollars. It pumps dollars into Ukraine and it basically uh, puts them under a, a dollar infrastructure and it does it all without affecting inflation on this side of the pond. Well, I don't know. I mean, I haven't thought about it enough. I'd have to look into it, but but the key thing you mentioned is inflation, because that's the real thing that is different this time around, is that inflation is a problem. And you can't- well, This just... is happening while inflation is a problem. That's, I mean, it's different than other like crises, because like at this moment, we are experiencing high inflation. At this very moment, it's happening. Usually crises like precede this. We we had a preceding crisis, right, with, with the pandemic, and we did a lot of printing and a lot of other things. But like usually the crisis is sort of a standalone crisis when it comes to well, financial. In this case, we have a lot of things kind of coming at once. I mean, if you think about it, like Alan Greenspan got, um, you know, very much blamed for hiking rates um, after, you know, in some ways, I think there was a concern that it was the rate hikes of Alan Greenspan that killed subprime, right? So rate hikes always have this situation especially once you have all this embedded liquidity already in the system and we're just doubling down and doubling down and the the mountain of debt just gets bigger and bigger and so does the interest rate sensitivity so you know this is the this is what's different this time round is that there's so much more liquidity out there all the numbers are so much bigger and when 4% or whatever the current rate is you know when your house is worth um you know half a mil that's a much smaller number than, you know, in the meantime, house prices go up. It's worth, you know, a, one and a half mil. Four percent is the interest rate sensitivity goes up. So that also means that as as your as but you that raise only, rate, that only matters on like an interest only loan. Right. Like most mortgages are, are at least in the United States are set. 
So, I mean, I mean, to me, the, the, the last, the, the housing bubble was caused then largely by arms, which were essentially yeah. interest only loans. You had to refinance every five years. To me, the SVB crisis Most is a Europe, similar. Like in, 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 in Europe, like in the UK, there is like, you guys have 25 year fixed, in, fixed um, mortgages. 30, we don't have that. 30. Like in it, we're so lucky. 30, right. My mortgage was two years fixed. Right. We and got then, rid of like that was that's like a night that's like some nineteen twenty-eight stuff, Isabella. We invented no, no, the thirty-year mortgage. Two years is the norm in the UK, right? Oh, that's so anyone dumb. Who fix, anyone who fixes it for more than five years is considered a weirdo, right? So um so that our interest rate sensitivity is massive. And in a funny way, Josh, like you'd think. Do you that, roll? That, do you roll them every two years? Like, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. Every, you always, you always. So you, the customer, bears the risk. Now, funnily enough, in some ways, that means Europe has fewer hold to maturity problems because they know they can pass the interest rate hikes on to the customer. It just your duration risk kills is two years essentially. Yeah, two Interesting. years. Interesting. I mean, like, that's very rare. I know Canada. Years. Canada does five years. And uh, I think it's five years. And like, it, it just, it does seem that the 30 year mortgage is a bit of a ridiculous uh, tool that the United States has in its toolbox. And I don't, I don't, I mean, is, is this going to be the end of the 30 year mortgage then? Or is, is this like, is, is this banking crisis analogous to the 2008 uh problems just this time it's in banking or like i mean it seems like the duration risk stuff is affecting every bank in the world it's not just here in the united states oh. isabella's cut out you Sorry, cut out isabella I'm back. <laughs> I'm back in america it'll inf impact institutions because they'll have hold to maturity issues right if they haven't hedged in europe it's gonna hit the the consumer base or at least in the uk because some of the continent is different are you guys gonna um, have to like leave your houses is it like is this gonna cause a housing crisis in europe as a result well it all depends on the real economy and you've got to realize that job job like non-farm payrolls keep going up right and in the uk we have a continuing labor shortage and inflation is is here and prices are going up which means incomes are going up so actually in a weird way as long as incomes keep going up with inflation then you should be able to handle the the resets, right? So in some ways, I don't think it's really that bad for the real economy. Um, who it is bad for is for the rent seekers who don't really work. <laughs> like if you don't work, you're living off rents, that's going to be a problem for you. But if you are um, in the marketplace working and you benefit from continuing sort of higher, you know, inflation adjusted wages, I think it's not going to be too bad. And in some ways, in my opinion, shaking out a lot of the kind of zero sum activities in tech, you know, in Silicon Valley, which were basically creating, you know, surveillance state unicorns that are focused on being, you know, what's the one from Highlander? They want to be the one, you know, there's only ever like monopoly um, outcome that that's, satisfies that model right um if that gets shaken out i don't think that's a bad thing because that just means um capital has to flow to more productive businesses businesses that are actually making money in the in the, in the here and now not these pie in the sky tech 
companies that need like five, 10 years before they become profitable. So I um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. It allows people to to kind of, um, I think it's, it's a really good opportunity, good opportunity for the real economy. But if the banking system collapses, that will take down the real economy with it. And that's yeah. why it's scary. Bring up, bring up my, uh, my little screenshot here. So you, you don't think this is a good bet. Oh, yeah, no, that's good that you did it right. What's happening? There this we is go. a, this is a Twitter, a, tw a Twitter. Yeah. Of your favorite person. Do you see it? Yep. Yeah, I see it. I can't, I can just about read it. Uh, let me see if I can make it bigger. Is that better? Here we go. Yeah. Okay. How do you ring the fire alarm on the internet? How do you show it's not a false alarm? I'm putting up the bit signal. $1 million <laughs> in BTC to alert us at the stealth financial crisis. $1,000 per tweet for the best 1,000. Uh, reply with your charts, graphs, stats, memes. Uh, and yesterday, Balaji bet somebody a $1 million uh, that we will hyperinflate within uh, 90 days. <laughs> that person gets to put one Bitcoin up. And uh, Balaji wins the Bitcoin if we hyperinflate, and Balaji will give him a million dollars if we don't. Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, I mean, I, I, th I, I think that's high. I, look, I, I think something's you think going that, on. Do you think that's coming? No, I, I, ninety days hyperinflation. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't. It's hard. To, like it's really hard. I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be sensible, right? Because Shores says uh, that I'm in both ears. Shores, I fixed it. It's actually a setting I I had to do in Streamyard, which is what we're using here. Uh, I had to take it off of stereo, so it was that stupid. It was that, it was that stupid. Um. Look, I I don't know. Um. I think there's definitely something happening, but I I um. I want to keep like my my common sense hat on, but it does feel incredibly, dare I say, coordinated because um, around the same time, you've got all these CBDCs coming out, like CBDCs everywhere. Like the Swiss are coming out with sweet CBDCs. The British are doing a CBDC. The Europeans are doing a CBDC. <clears throat> the Fed are doing a CBDC. Also, the, the um, resolution for Credit Suisse, the original resolution, was very kind of full reserve-y and kind of, in my mind, a prelude to CBDCs. I want someone to acknowledge that CBDCs don't exist. They're just, they're just Fed accounts. That's all they are. Like the whole they world are. is, and you're right, it, it does feel coordinated because like we've talked about Fed accounts uh, for yeah, many, but, many but, years. The CBDC, in my opinion, <clears throat> is just a euphemism for full reserve banking. That's basically what it is. Why, why is it a euphemism for full reserve banking? Because that's what it is. At the moment, like it's so, so China started this, right? China started it by forcing WeChat and Alipay, right, to no longer be de facto shadow banks, right? So they were operating as payment companies, but they had the capacity to do whatever they wanted with the float, right? And they could be they were like tethers and they were saying, Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, some of them had like Alipay had one of the biggest money market funds in the world. It was called Yubao, I think, probably terribly pronounced. Um, and they were taking lots of risks. And, and the Chinese authorities kind of came in and they said, well, we don't want like, you know, a shadow bank operating on, on outside of our purview. So they they forced 
Alipay and WeChat to um, essentially have accounts at the PBOC on a full reserve basis, right? Which means like you cannot, like so normal banks, there's a reserve ratio and you can like, you you know, recently they've been cutting the reserve ratio, but say it's like, I can't remember what it is, but say it's like 4% or 5%. We um, chat and Alipay have to have 100%, 100% at the central banks. So it's full reserve banking. And, um, and this coincides by the way, with the like disappearance of Jack Ma. <laughs> and you remember how he like disappeared and you know he was very bad he was bad mouthing like the PBO like Xi Jinping. Um, what, what, but, and I, know, what I, advantage I, does that give them? What advantage does full reserve banking give like the libertarians have screamed for a very long time about fractional reserve banking? I'm not I'm not an idiot, so I like the benefits of fractional reserve banking for the most part. I like them. It it allows high liquidity in a market. It's great. It's well, wonderful. The invention is, in, is is wonderful. You know, but fraction like full reserve banking is, in my opinion, seemingly at least highly restrictive. It doesn't allow uh, liquidity. Like the only way that you could do this is with like pseudo full reserve, kind of like what the Fed is announcing, where they have like the infinite balance sheet. I think is what Brad Mills called it: the infinite well, infinite reserve banking. Most importantly, federal, uh, full reserve banking puts all the power of credit like uh, extension and money money extension money well, multiplier to the government. Like to, yes, to and it re- but it removes it. Re- it in some sense it removes credit extension. There's there is exactly. like how do you do credit? Well, it just does. So, but, but this it, this it, is it, my it nationalizes money and it makes it the the prerogative of the it central does. bank. It does severely contract the money supply. So I guess that in some ways pulls back on inflation, but it it prevents creation of money through loans, right? So like it's it's a really weird, a really weird problem that I'm like, you know, I, I, I thought a long time ago, if you wanted to move to UBI uh, in a society, you would have to move by using full reserve banking. That's the only way that you could do it. And previous to this, I thought that that's just never going to happen. But as I'm watching these moves, like it doesn't really, it, it doesn't seem like it's that, that I'm wrong. No, no. I mean, it's weirdly coming, um, you know, in some ways it's coming about organically um, because the system is, is, you know, the banks have basically overextended themselves, blah, blah, blah. But in this case, it's the, it's actually the central banks that have created all that liquidity and now they've decided to, con- to contract it. And they are, it's a game of, do you have musical chairs in America? Yeah, you know that game? We're the best at musical chairs in America, Isabella. Are you totally frozen? Oops. No, no, you were. I said we we are the best oh, right. at so musical chairs in America. I hear you now. Okay, so this is a game of musical chairs, right? So the, the, they've created, they've put out loads of chairs. That's the QE liquidity because everyone needed a chair, because if they didn't, you know, the economy w- would have collapsed without the chairs. And now they've decided to take the chairs away. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously going to be people who don't get a chair. And that was expected and obvious. And everyone knew this would happen. Like, it's if not banks shocking. can't innovate on interest rates and products, doesn't that fully commoditize banking? Yes. Okay. 100% what? in the sense of... What's the point? I mean, like, it, I mean it, it, just seems, it just seems like it just essentially turns the the only bank in the world that matters into the fed 
Well, that's it's not the Fed. It's worse than that. It's Gosbank. It's like the USSR Gosbanking system. It is essentially one bank, one state bank, and the bank will have like arms and according to political agendas. So it'll be the government arm. You know, like you see this already happening with with the climate change stuff with with um, at the Bank of England. Like they've got a whole climate agenda. So loans to you know they want to stimulate uh, green finance, right? So if you happen to have a green company, you'll get cheaper financing than than if you are. You know, this is the whole ESG thing. Like we're going to give the right sort of companies the money cheaply and the wrong companies they're going to get like completely frozen out i read a book this <laughs> week isabella i read a book this week uh for women's finance oh. it was called girls just want to have funds funds and uh chapter four was invest i think it was invest sustainably or think sustainably and i was i was just i was laughing at the idea of like uh, the best way to lose money in a market is to think sustainably uh, and to invest in sustainable things like this ESG stuff is like a mandate to lose money. Yeah. And it, it has been losing money and it's, and, and to me, the whole thing stinks of politicized money and politicized banking. And that's not how you do good business. Because here's, here's, here's my question about banks. Banks have existed long before countries. Real banks have no loyalty to countries. All right. We know this, right? I think, Actually, I think that the Swiss banking system is is evidence of this. They have no, they have no allegiance to the rules of any country. They'll do what they need to. Are we going to move? It, like, is it possible that we move to a system where banks sort of reject what the Fed and these other central banks are proposing and just start issuing their own monies? I, I know that's a very stupid kind of sounding question, but like, banks are going to exist outside of the framework of government in some ways. They're going to. Because the they are the regulation. The problem is the regulation. But, like, but like at some point they're going to say, "Screw this! We have to survive." It, it, well, the profitability factor is huge, which is why they're not going to have any other choice but to, like, um, in my opinion, go with the CBDC thing. It's like the it's like with Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse that covered loan is the beginnings of a CBDC style arrangement with 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 their central bank. The central bank is basically the 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 only institution that can determine how much um you know money credit suisse can extend or contract at any given moment right and 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 credit suisse becomes a mere conduit that's all it is and and that is really dangerous in some ways because it 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 transfers it transfers all the kind of like risk taking decision making to the government or the I, central bank i, I mean i'm sure Credit Suisse will still have some autonomy in whatever guise it, you know, survives in to like make lending decisions. But those lending decisions will be determined on on national, you know, de facto government guidelines and agendas. And that means if you are, you know, a bit of a risk player, you want to take a different perspective, or you know, you don't think ESG funds are going to do well or whatever, you don't have that opportunity because. It's a state banking system at that point. And that's what happened I, in the USSR. I will admit, though, Isabella, I'm confused as to why you think CBDCs the, the are, are more analogous to full reserve banking than just Fed accounts. I, I don't understand that exactly, because to me, like you can still fractionalize CBDCs. You can still, you know, they're just to me, they're just dollars in a ledger, just like what we have. Now. I don't see that much difference. The difference is that there's an interface where the money goes from the bank to some other place. And that place is going to be a Fed account. 
you can't fractionalize them. That's the thing. Like, because the only set, like, so it's going to be atomic settlement. Like, you know, so you only can, you can only um, transfer CBDCs within their own little um, specific compartmentalized universe, right? So you, if you go and do, like, if a bank takes, like, some CBDCs, it can't then be part of the payment system because the liabilities it issues that the extended ones won't won't gel with the with the CBDC architecture. They'll be frozen out. That, so it, it it's not at the moment. You have a hybrid system where government liabilities and bank liabilities, which are private, coexist and are fungible between each other. Right? And why can't you and, have liability? Why can't bank liabilities draw against their CBDC holdings? Like, I mean, like, think about it this way. Like you have a mortgage, you're not getting like when you put, uh, you know, let's say I go to bank of America, uh, has America in the name. So it's the greatest bank in the world. And, uh, they, they give me a mortgage, uh, and you know, they wire me money, uh, so I can, you know, put the down payment on the house or something like that. Right. Um, or they wire the other person money. Like those are just sort of like, you know, bank of America dollars, right? They're not real dollars until I go in and like withdraw them. Why can't you have liabilities drawn against CBDCs in that same way? Because fundamentally, if the payment system, if when you go and you pay like at Amazon or blah, 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 like real money is mainly settled through CBDC, then you 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 will have to like transform it into CBDC. And like with a mortgage, that is a, like if Bank of America, like or whatever bank, you know, manufactures its own liabilities and, and does a fractional reserve, you can't de facto go and buy a house with it because it doesn't it, it won't it won't settle against the core of the cbdc i mean cbdcs are weird because they're it really depends on the model like um so some central banks are looking at wholesale cbdcs others are looking at retail so in in the retail example i think your your argument maybe maybe there will still be you know i think in the retail example your your argument works but if we go to wholesale CBDC, that will be very, very difficult, I think, in my opinion, to do because effectively wholesale will have to all 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 um, credit extension will have to basically be funded through the core CBDC. I, just, I mean, this um, is going to cause and, and this is a, this is weird, but like this level of control, if what you're saying is accurate, is going to cause essentially the entire world to begin operating on a black market economy. Well, that's the question, like, will it? I don't know, because now in a digital economy, it's, it's so much harder to um, circumvent. Like, you no, know, we, let's, you we know have the easiest way to pandemic. circumvent like, it in the know, world. People, we, if, Bitcoin if has go, made it completely feasible to circumvent this entire system. Like, I don't usually push Bitcoin, but like in, in a world that you're describing, like it's the perfect solution to circumvent. That is what that's what will happen. Bitcoin. Yeah. Why, just you'd circumvent it like screw it like i'm out i opt out well that's probably why there's been a massive kind of um attack on all the crypto companies in the last yeah i think i think this like operation choke point is probably doing exactly that but like it's not gonna matter like you know this thing's got enough legs you can't take its legs out from under it at this point i don't think i think you know, my view is is i think bitcoin is an important thing to have in the economy i'm kind of like incredibly cynical where every other crypto, I think most of them are crap. Um, but I think you need a sort of neutral entity. Yeah, I, I've said that before. That's the only I know, thing I, just, I just like to take credit. 
Um, but you need something that you can parlay with with your enemy <clears throat> enemies. Because if you can't, then like I mean, everyone needs to parlay every now and then. And international commerce would completely die if we only interoperated with our own systems and those of our allies. So doesn't um, doesn't yeah. your world though this full reserve banking? I mean, doesn't it eliminate the ability to borrow? Doesn't it eliminate a lot of this, like mortgages and such? You can still borrow. It's just you you borrow on fully funded terms, right? So the beauty of conventional finance is that I go to the bank, the bank lends me the money, which it hasn't even funded yet. It just puts some digits in my account because it manages the account. And then it only has to fund the bit of it that it's worried might be might be exposed to run risk, right? That's so so it thinks that's an any insurance given- insurance play at that point. Yeah, so so that's the beauty, but but eventually, it has to be fully funded eventually. But like, there's you've got du- this whole question of duration. So, the bank wants <clears throat> to eventually recoup the entire fully funded loan that it makes. That's how it makes money by taking a punt on who it can extend money to, and you know that person will go and make money in the real economy and return money that can can effectively come in on its income statement. So that is that is um that's how it works. They so they lend first and then they fund later, right? Whereas with a CBDC, you'd have to fund, you fund first, first lend later. And then lend, right? So I it's see. fully collateralized. And and then to be fair, like that's exactly how Bitcoin works, right? But the yeah. um but the difference is is that you know if you, you can't want do loans in Bitcoin though. Like that's that's the point. Yeah. But that is not you know, from my perspective, I think I don't agree with this idea that the entire universe has to be Bitcoin. I think that would be really bad for the economy. Well, I don't. I don't agree with that either. I'm just saying if they're gonna if they're gonna dismantle the uh, the financial system in this way, it just yeah. seems to me that like the only option is black market money. That's it. Yeah. That's all you got because like uh, you you have this utter control over everybody's life. You have complete control over what they can and cannot spend their money on. The notion of full reserve banking tightens money supply. So like there's, there's, you know, it, I guess it brings it more in line with this idea of hard money, but with like government, pure government control. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just think these, like anyone with, you know, there's so much, this is a good pivot to the media conversation because in some ways there's so much gaslighting going on that um, it's hard to really know. Like I have, I have like this hope that somewhere in the system there are people, like serious people, in charge of these things who understand what's going on, and they're like, are, okay, we've got like are, this. This is like a, a, a massive kind of um, you know house of cards. It's going to fall down. We have to make you know contingencies. Um, let's do this 2008 like QE thing, and in the interim, let's find. Let's find like the way to, con- you know, contain the kid contagion. Um, Is- and- Isabella, ninety-five percent of economists don't believe fundamental truths about economics, <laughs> and they a lot of them are kind of nutters who won a prize for like one theory. Right? Paul Krugman's a great example. Uh, he's a nut, total crazy, uh, and he won a Nobel Prize because he had one good theory. Uh, Ludwig von Mises, the favorite of the Misens, uh, he had some, he had a good book and then he, he, and then he came up with this enormous 4,000 page screed that I have to hear about every time I go to a libertarian discussion. <laughs> and like, 
I mean, these are all like all of these guys, like they all they come up with one or two theories. I think Keynes is the only one that I would say had like pretty good, consistent ideas. And Keynes uh, also adjusted his mindset according to the circumstances. And like, well, I mean, the, the, the entire the entire thought behind Keynesianism is that the economies act in different ways and you need to treat them differently depending on, you know, what's going on in the economy itself. Right. And, yeah. you know, it's it's interesting in the U.S. right now, like we're going through this tightening cycle where they're uh, they're raising interest rates and the economy is still burning hot, super hot. It's almost like uh -huh. the Fed can't do anything about it. They keep raising uh -huh. rates. The market adjusts. The uh, market anticipates the next raise. It adjusts. They raise them or they, they don't. Uh, the market adjusts again uh, once those rates are known. And it just keeps just keeps happening. And the market just keeps burning hot, burning hot. The economy burning hot. Everyone buying. Everything's getting bought. Not that like they can't do anything anymore. Yep. I mean, that's the difference this time around is that 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 heat is is in the system. And it, so in we, some we, way, Winsome, Winsome Hacks says Western nations have proved they can't be trusted. They will cut you off if you have unapproved opinions, etc. They used financial systems to strangle other states. And I think that's true. And I think like I think half of the country knows that and the other half uh, hasn't figured that out or wants that to happen because they think that their opinions are. Now, here's an interesting thing. So money is a t sort of weapon in and of like, you know, weaponization of money. Like we've seen it with, with sanctions, right? But um, there's a sovereignty side of it as well, because what's interesting, and this is one of the real reasons that they're pushing ahead of CBDCs. It's not just that Libra came along and threatened their monopoly, although it is partly that as well. Um, but China has this CBDC, WeChat. Well, it's not a CBDC, it's, it's WeChat, but it's de facto CBDC because it's, like I said, fully fully collateralized. And if you have the WeChat app, right, and your money app, you can go in London, apparently, and um, use it in a Chinese shop that accepts WeChat and pay for your goods in Yuan, right? So there are Chinese shopkeepers in Soho who are doing barter, or not, not barter, sorry, doing exchange for goods in denominated in, in Yuan and settled via the PBOC through WeChat in the UK. And because it all happens um, without touching the sterling system, the HMRC can't tax them for it. I mean, they could, but they wouldn't, like, it'd be impossible for them to, to prove, Right. And there is this like ridiculous loophole. Now it's a form of stealth colonization in a weird way because you're basically sending your people to um, to like the UK or wherever. Like it, it doesn't have to be China; it could be anyone. Like anyone with a with well, a. Well, this was my my point about uh, Ukraine, right? Like dollar hegemony is a thing, and China's trying to create uh, UN he hegemony. Yeah, and that, so that just, I, and it seems very obvious to me that that's that is the the war that's going on right now, is is like currency hegemony, and like yeah. that seems to be the fight that everyone's having, and uh, it has everything that you know like going into Africa if you're China, going into Ukraine if you're America. The goal is 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 supremacy of a currency, and we're fighting for it. And frankly, I think I think America is going to win that war, but I do think that like you can't win it unless you're fighting it. And I don't think that people well, realize that that's, ways, fighting. that's because any interest derived from your currency, whatever activity you have beyond borders, if they're using it, right. It's a form of like all roads lead back to Rome, right. <laughs> the, um, it, it is, 
it is your revenue that is coming from the offshore centers through your colonization de facto and and the rents the the interest is it, it's your tribute it's the tribute that a satrap nation that is like effectively bonded to you through these income as jesus said you know give to give to caesar what is his whatever um the the this is de facto what's going on it's about steep not stealing but like accumulating or attracting as much as many of the kind of positive uh rents that are out there to be had and profits and have them be booked on your sovereign balance sheet instead of somebody else's and so there's this weird like the whole world war three when it happens is going to be really confusing because there isn't clearly defined geographic boundaries anymore it's like Everyone is, I mean, I don't know if you saw the, the, the protests in Georgia. Did you see that? Which Georgia? Georgia in the Caucasus. Ah, okay. Yeah. Because uh, I saw the protests in Atlanta, Georgia, but not in uh, the, the Georgian, not in the Caucasus, not the country. What are they protesting? So Georgia. So Georgia is one of the kind of satellite states of, of what well, was former USSR, famously the home of Edward Shevardnadze, um, mm -hmm. and none other than Stalin, <laughs> mm -hmm. and possibly also Putin's dad, but, but mother. But that, that's a that's a that's a that's a rumor. Um, anyway, so they they've been like in this weird sort of proxy. They had one of the they had their own like revolution. I forget what color it was. Um, and the main dude there is a guy called Sakishvili, and he was at one point, I think he was the governor of Odessa, um, and he's the kind of American guy. He's he's the liberal, and he's in prison, or he was in prison. Like at, at some point, he's always in prison. And um, anyway, so Georgia's been kind of like a territory that's been a big pivot state in terms of influence. And the last couple of weeks, there were these protests coming up because the government there had wanted to pass a law that forced NGOs or for any kind of insti like foreign institution to declare any like foreign foreigners working there as foreign agents right so if you had a um I don't know like an Oxfam or whatever those people would be you know if if they were not locals whatever they had to be declared foreign agents and this was seen as like Putin influencing the government to try and uh, intimidate and sort of, um, you know, make it difficult for foreigners to, to influence Georgia, right? And huge protests. And in the end, they overturned, like the, the, the protests were so massive that they um, they overturned that rule and it's it's been quashed. But the interesting thing is that the EU is doing the same rule. They're doing the same rule for foreign agents. Like they're worried about Russians infiltrating. So it's just, it's really funny. But that that one is passing. And it was and without, really funny. Without, a, like without protest. Will says if those were U.S. sponsored protests, come on. Maybe, Will. I, I, I do think but, it's very convenient for Americans to believe that every... Because the, Euro the Georgians were even holding like, we want to be European cars. Meanwhile, yeah, the yeah. same... I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting. Like, Americans love to claim the CIA, like, foments every protest around the world. It's our favorite thing to claim. We're not that powerful. Like, we're just not. Like, the Maidan revolution, I think, is everyone's favorite uh, to say was like a CIA uh, color revolution. 
of sorts. I'm I'm very skeptical. Very skeptical that that was us. You believe it. I I, I can see it in your face. I wouldn't. I don't know. I have no idea. But I'm. I'm I, I only. I'm on I can tell you. I'm skeptical because like I know Nord a number Stream. of. What's like that? Nord Stream. Nord Stream. Like I don't know who did it. Yeah, but, yeah, I think I think in that way, but I I I was I knew a number of the participants, and I, I like a lot of the the people doing my don, some of the higher ups, and like I don't think I don't think it was you know I I think it's easy to say from a distance that that's what the U.S. does or would do. I think it's very difficult to believe uh, that like every protest everywhere in the world is uh, is like CIA led. It, it doesn't mean that like some of them aren't, but like we're not that good at stuff. Like we really aren't. And, no, and the I, way that I, I find the theory that you do it and you mess it up, but I, I, and I think you try to do it and then you mess it up as well. But I do think, I don't think it's just like a hundred, a hundred percent for like, I think it's an obvious playbook that is used by very lots of different nations. I'm sure the Russians do it in, you know, lots of different nations use the same playbook and it's all about causing division and polarization. It's very obvious when it's happening. The Nord Stream uh, thing is really interesting, especially with a, like Seymour Hirsch coming out was it William Seymour Hirsch coming out with his, uh, with his report? I, 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 you know, I, I find that hard. It's a very hard, uh, a hard line to believe. I feel like the Nord stream, uh, pipeline was blowed up by America. Absolutely. With certainty. Like, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, I, again, I, I genuinely have no idea, but I think it's interesting how Seymour has, has become like you know toxic for me my general reading of the room is often not about the details and the fact i look at the reaction and how people immediately get very emotional or uh, irrational in terms of like if they shoot they if they try to really shoot the messenger i i think that's a very irrational behavior and that makes me suspicious right so it's not yes. like I don't have any real reason to to suspect it's America. Uh, even those like clips of Joe Biden saying we know how to do it and we'll do it. <laughs> even that, like, I don't know. I have no idea. But you're not wrong. I, I do. I do think it's weird. Like, I mean, the the uh, Wuhan lab leak stuff like that. Everything that like apparently is true. Uh, everyone, everyone comes out early on. And like the government will stand up all sorts of information to, to prove you wrong. So you're right that it is it is an interesting reaction that the world took to the Seymour Hirsch article, particularly with regard to the government and standing up against it and just calling it like an obvious conspiracy. Because you're right. We do not know. We have no info. I mean, there are different theories and there's now the counter theory about a pro-Ukrainian group. Um, but that's also got lots of holes in it. Like, to be honest... I don't think it even matters. I sometimes think that some of these mysteries, some of these ambiguities serve both sides. And like the whole point of like, who, you know, who started COVID? Like, was it a lab leak or was it zoonotic? I, I kind of think like, maybe, maybe it serves all, it's kind of Orwellian in the sense that everyone wants this perpetual war. Like China wants it, Russia wants it, we want it. And it serves our interests to have these, mysteries that can be web, like propaganda can never, can never be answered fully it can never be answered there's ambiguity and they they allow each side to create their own like mystery and propaganda and, and, and theories about right you're absolutely correct i think i think you're right 
we are always at war with Eurasia is that is the example of it. We are always um, in an information war where we literally have 10 or 15 balls in the air that will never come down ever. What, we'll never, we'll you, never get the answers. What did you think of the spy balloon? It, uh, it confused me greatly. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I, I found the story to be boring. Uh, I found the story to be, uh, in unimportant and I found it to be utterly, uh, taking, taking up all of the airwaves, utterly fat. It was, it was yeah. the fattest lady I've ever met. It was weird. Again, it was really weird me, how it was so pervasive. And, and what was weirder than anything was the, the strong opinions that people formed about what we should do with this balloon. And I, I remember like in clubhouse and other places, people were screaming at each other about like how inept Biden is for not shooting it down over Wyoming and how stupid that was. Other people were, you know, praising him. And I, like, it was, it, it felt like I was watching people argue for two weeks over like uh, a balloon that was like released from a little girl's birthday party. And I'm, I'm sure that it was more important than that, but I just could not understand how it could have been as important as the time we gave it. Oh. Did you hear that? Uh-oh. Yeah, I did. It oh, was just a little bit of a breakup. Obviously, the Chinese spies are flying above and doing interference they don't want us talking on, our, about it. on our broadcast. <laughs> yeah, this was clear intervention. Um, so let's crack on. Let's move on to the last topic that we also want. I mean, there's so much going on. There's actually two other topics. I want to ask you, Josh, because I've been doing a lot of the banking talking. Um, I want to ask you about what the hell is going on with Trump. Okay. He, so why? <clears throat> so as and, I understand yeah, it, they're, and, they're trying to indict him on that Stormy Daniel story. Uh, the payments to Story da Stormy Daniel, which were, you know, pre-presidency, pre pre uh, I think during the campaign, maybe. And, uh, you know, it was to get her to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And uh, they're trying to indict him on it. It's it's a really weird story because it's so obviously political. And it's so obviously, uh, I mean, it, it honestly, I think for a lot of people, it's going to confirm their biases that Trump is maybe the cleanest person that's ever been in politics. Because they spent years and years uh, touching his balls and looking in his butthole for every, like, everything. Like, they've gone through his taxes. They've gone through everything, right? And the worst that they got is a four-year-old story where he may have paid a lady to bang him. Like, oh, no. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're claiming they're going to arrest him on Tuesday. That's, that's what the rumors are. Trump said it, and I think that there's been some confirmation. So, there's people that believe that basically they're going to try to perp walk him. Um, and I guess he's saying that he's he's going to he's happily going to surrender or whatever like this will this this is very likely to win him the, the candidacy for the Republican Party and um, possibly the presidency again, which will be real weird. So I think he's very happy to get like indicted at this point because they've the, the, the Democrats have made it very clear that they're willing to do anything in bad faith to him. And it, it really makes them look like the problem. So remember one of our chats about how the UK legal system is very different in terms of how you report on it versus the US. And yeah. what I find interesting, this is just an observation, I'm really not an expert, but it seems to me like there's a lot of people dismissing the idea that Trump won't get a fair trial, right? And um, and 
as if it's kind of like preposterous that the legal system is, you know, beyond, you know, any doubt. And I find that like just based on our conversation about Tommy Robinson and how, you know, in the UK, we do everything we can to protect the sort of um, contamination in terms of media opinion that we have to protect the jury from any bias and, and prejudgment, right? And it's taken very, very seriously. And in America, you don't have that. It's like trial by media happens all the time. And you get these, you know, circuses of, of, of a court case. And so me, for me, what I find weird in the coverage is the idea that people saying that he won't have a fair trial are somehow crazy people. I, I think that's I think it's self-evident that he won't get a fair trial because. Well, I, okay. I, so here's here's the difference. The UK the UK does a lot of the restriction stuff. In the United States, we don't have those restrictions usually, and I think the US system is better. The problem in the US is that jurisdictions are captured. Okay, so for example, in in uh, Washington DC, the voting statistics show that something like ninety eight percent of the population votes Democrat. Ninety eight percent. So what do you think happens when you're, you're, you're doing a jury of your peers and you're a Republican in DC? You're, you think that you think that you're going to get any Republicans on that jury, not just that it's a professional class. So you're not getting any Republicans. You're not getting any plumbers. You're not getting anybody, but the wives of lawyers uh, that work for the state department who are hardcore uh, Democrats. Like that's, that's like a jury pool in DC. Uh, New York is similarly disposed uh, you know, so like the, and, and the Southern district of New York, the SDNY is extremely aggressive. I think they're the ones going after this. I'm not sure, but the, the point is that if they can get them into New York to, to do a trial, uh, there's, there's no such thing in the American, in, in America's view as like a fair trial there for a person that is clearly being put on trial for a uh, political reason. Right. So, you know, and, and not only that, the American system allows for a lot of indiscretion by like prosecutors. So I don't think like, I, I don't think that those people are crazy. And I think that there's just a sort of miss. Uh, there, there's a, there's a gap between what uh, one side of the political aisle believes a fair trial looks like. And the other side believes a fair trial looks like. And so will the trial itself be conducted in a way that represents a fair trial? Probably uh, will the trial itself be fair probably well but the people that are deciding his fate would i consider them to be juries of his peers probably not so we we do have tainted jury pools in a lot of places and i think that's actually where the corruption is in the american system not so much in the in in the court or the media process I, the media can say anything the jury should remain fairly untainted the problem with the jury pool is that it's often very political yeah. But um, so the other thing that's happening is that there's some the, the story about Biden's links to China is coming out as well at the same time. No and one cares. The, the, Nobody cares. And this Nobody is, will ever care. But this is where I find this is, again, as a external person, I find that very interesting that, you know, for me, like, obviously, you don't want to pay hush money to a stripper. It's not good. It's not good for a look. But in terms of like, proportion of the crime like taking money from china <laughs> you know is much worse <laughs> if, if you're, i don't know like the proportion of like i just find like what what is going on which the, i think is a good point to pivot to um oh 
and 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 just because you know this you'd mentioned that you'd spotted it too like there's increasingly this like situation where you're either in power or you're in prison right and that has been the norm in sort of south america for a very long time um but it isn't the norm in europe or in america or in the north north america right and um but i've noticed this trend like across western europe it's a, everyone- it's a dictatorial problem this is what happens and in america we've got two political parties uh one has lost the plot the other is being pushed to the lost plot, if you will. Um, The Democrats have decided to act in a way that makes the entirety of uh, the political landscape inescapably swampy and uh, problematic. Now, the Democrats would say the Republicans have done this. I I can say objectively that's false, but uh, anyone listening who's left-leaning will disagree. Uh, The Democrats have become overrun by uh, their Marxists and their commie uh, factions. And they are fully, fully capitulating to like these sort of, you know, banana Republic type demands. And they're doing it by accusing the Republicans of doing it, which the Republicans have kind of stayed in the same place. And the problem is that the response to stuff that the Democrats do is to do the thing back to them. So, okay, we have this evidence that Joe Biden is captured by the Chinese uh, honestly, we've had that type of evidence on the Democrats since the early 2000s. Al Gore was found taking bribes in the back of a temple in the early 2000s, uh, like just straight up caught, right? Nothing happens. Uh, you know, there's been all sorts of weird dealings with the Clintons. Hillary was the greatest cattle futures trader for a year in like 1970s. Um, there's all sorts of stuff the Democratic Party has been engaged in for a long time. Uh, the Republicans have their miscreants, but these are the people at the top of the Democratic Party. So, like, this has been happening. This stuff's been happening for a really, really long time. And, you know, what happens is, is we just kind of accept it as part of the political landscape. But Trump broke everybody's brains, and I don't know why. I don't understand what why Trump was so different. And I think it's because he was so unorthodox and he won. Did you hear no his thought- did you hear his latest little video that he did? I mean, he's he's the he was a lot on YouTube, so didn't he do like an eight-second video or something like that? Yeah, but the latest one is all like, yeah, the enemy is not Russia. The enemy is in us. <laughs> he's, anyway. dude, the, the dude's a comedian, and he really like, he broke, he broke the brains of people. And like the thing is, when I discuss uh, people, I discuss Trump with people. Like Trump is not the person right? Trump is more of a, Trump is more of a a metaphor. It's, he's a, he's a time in history. He might end up being the most important president ever in the history of American politics. Uh, Not like because he's Abe Lincoln, but because like he really does signify a sea change in political atmosphere. And I don't understand what it is. It seems like the, it seems like the Democrats were focused on a narrative That narrative broke when Trump won and the crimes that were done to prevent Trump from being president, they spent a lot of years covering up and they, and and it broke them because it, it forced them into narratives that are both false and, uh, and very dangerous in terms of goosing a population. So now we are here in America, in my opinion, on the verge of what I would call civil war. Um, I don't think we're that far from it. Uh, 
and I think the Democrats really, really want the shooties to start. So like put Trump in jail, I guess that's what they want because I don't think that the American public is going to stand for it. I, I would like, if they're going to actually put Trump in jail, I'm buying a farm and I'm uh, turning off the TV, getting, I'm going to use an analog phone and uh, I'm buying the farm off books from an Amish person. No one's going to know where I am. I don't want to, I don't want to be in the city when the shooties start. Right. I mean, the, um, I've read that people are anticipating some agent provocateurs, right? So that that there's going to be, you know, people pretending to be Trump supporters, creating trouble and insurrection style um, madness. It's so hard in these sort of situations. And this is like when you go back to the kind of coup plotting, um, you know, I don't know. Well, it's well, all, well, I don't think it's that very I don't think Americans, I, I, like, I think that the, there's now the response by the Republicans is to find a active activist prosecutor somewhere who will just do the same thing to Biden. You know, they'll bring him into like a Republican captured area. Like, I don't know, Wyoming, and they'll charge him with, I don't know, bank fraud or something like that. Right. And uh, they're like, okay, fine. We'll put him in jail. They'll just put the whole Biden family in jail and then Obama and then Clinton. And then everybody will just like, well, and then the Democrats will do it to the Republicans. Like I'm very, I'm very afraid of where this goes because like it's it's clear that once you start doing political imprisonment, you're about 10 minutes from gulags. Yeah, well, so there's, let's let's address some comments um, and then we'll finish on the media um, circus uh, as well. But the um, there's um, a nice point about um, Hunt and China that I wanted to address because um, it is. It was very interesting to me that HSBC came to rescue Silicon Valley Bank, and I couldn't understand the reason why they would do it. And we didn't really get to see the balance sheet in the UK. Um, but if the balance sheet was anything like the US, it, it was not a good balance sheet. And, and generally speaking, I don't see the UK tech sector being any more resilient than the Californian one. And um, and so it, it seemed a bit of a mystery. And we, we just don't know the balance sheet, so we can't comment. But um, the, the only challenges to, to the acquisition were like, like never heard of other like banks. Um, and I thought maybe there was like a sweetener or a guarantee put in or, you know, whatever. Apparently there wasn't. And um, and somebody did mention to, and, you know, to me that, that you know, what about this like security side of it? Because Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong, Shanghai, um, banking core as it is otherwise known is now in in its own kind of like dual state where it's both like nobody really knows who who calls the shots in the bank is it is it shanghai is it is it the uk either way it's a weird kind of like corridor of of confusion and and, and chaos and I, I mean, it's a big bank. It's a huge retail bank. It's like an established bank here in the UK. I don't think most people think of it as Chinese at all. But the reality is, is, is it has acquired this little tiny tech company that happens to co-invest a lot with government. And the way things work in the UK is that so many of these tech companies, startups, right? The only reason they get the funding is because they've got like a backdoor to a government contract. And and like, 
it's all mates, you know, contracts. Like the UK is really sordid like that. So you, you're you a startup, you wouldn't make money, but you land this contract, like the PPE contracts. That's the best example of the corruption. Um, and obviously you're going to be profitable because you've got a government contract. You're not really an entrepreneur, though. You're basically just an agent of, of the government. Like that's what's going on. So a lot of those startups that nearly failed um were in those sorts of relationships they don't really you know they're not really proper entrepreneurs so i wanted to address that um and the other point was somebody mentioned bukele and um i actually had a massive fight with david gerard about bukele um and he he um left my discord as a result and i just thought it was interesting because to me so the debate was whether or not Bukele is a dictator or not and I think and I don't want to like you can join the discord and see the the legacy chat but Ger D David Gerard's point was basically that um you know he's reprehensible and what he's doing and he's obviously a dictator and you know you can't possibly um give him any platform and I I all I said is this meal is good enough for Jehovah no all I said was that I think it's wrong for us to judge what the El Salvadorians think is okay by our own standards because El Sal I'm not an El Salvador history expert, but neither is David Gerard. I mean, he claims to be now, but, you know, I suspect, I don't know, maybe he is. He maybe knows more, than, more about it than me, but all I do know about El Salvador is that there's been decades of unrest, decades of, like, murder gangs or all sorts of like um you know disruption you've got the, the 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 crazy drug gangs running around and before that even you had the soccer war it's 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 been a pit like a it's been a chaotic situation for a very long time and it's like one of the few things that is good about um el salvador is that it was a democracy like bukele was despite it all elected as far as we can see in a i think fairly okay election and he has the mandate of the people and sometimes the mandate of the people there's this weird kind of gray area where like is it fair if you've got the mandate of the people to take extraordinary executive action to sort out something that you can't sort out in any other way like in some ways it's a du duration thing so like if you are a dictator you know you have like x amount of runway time like in the future to sort out a problem if people know you're going to be gone in two years they're not going to take you seriously right so in in very extreme scenarios and this is me putting my ancient history hat on i think di like temporary dictatorships are not irrational and actually not contrary yeah. to almost like democracy. a benevolent dictatorship the, the people saw him as a benevolent dictator they've asked him to come in he's doing his thing uh, he'll make mistakes. I, I don't disagree. I think it's hard to have a democratically elected dictator until they break the election system. Right. And then they're getting 95% of the vote. Uh, and I, I, I mean, we'll see with Bukele. Uh, he might be a dictator. He might not be, but you know, like from what I've heard, it seems, it seems like that's what the country likes right now. It's, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to have a much sympathy for like MS 13. Exactly. But I mean, David Gerard would say that oh, he's doing deals with other elements of of MS13, and he's you know he's a hypocrite. Well, there's predicate for this. There's predicate for this. Look at like um, what is it, Venezuela? Uh, 
well, not Venezuela. What's the, uh, the, the Colombia, you know, Colombia brought a lot of the like drug cartel class into politics because it was the only way to end the wars with them. It was the only way to end the killing. Like there's some, uncon sometimes you have to do some unconventional stuff and you have to realize that like the stakeholders in these systems uh, are sometimes people that like, you know, you might consider extremely evil, even like the drug cartels, uh, like, like in Mexico, the drug cartels have a lot of power. They're not going to get out of that by like, unless, I mean, they, I guess I could drop a nuke on them, but they're not going to get out of that easily without just like genociding the cartels. And maybe that's the, the right answer. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, I think that Colombia showed that there are diplomatic options to ending a lot of the like tyranny of uh, of, of this stuff, because these are like pseudo governments within a country. It's it's cute. We do like we work with like Vicente Fox's government or whatever. He was president of Mexico at one time and he's uh, viewed as the president of Mexico. But the truth is that there are these factions in different regions and they're kind of the presidents of their region. And it's really difficult for us as uh, Americans, I think, to understand that and, and other and people in civilized nations um, where you, you realize that, like, there are these people or these countries that have sort of tribal factions in different areas. And that was true of, you know, Pablo Escobar and others. Right. Uh, at one time, I didn't Pablo get elected into Congress. In Colombia. Like, well, yeah, is, and also Mavrodi, Mavrodi in Russia. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah, they, they, they were loved by the people like you might not like it, but they were <laughs> like, it is what it is. And uh, and this is a different approach instead of instead of like negotiating with these these goddamn uh, gangsters. Uh, what he's doing is he's treating them as harshly as anyone's ever treated anybody and putting them in prison. If the propaganda videos are to be believed and maybe he is, maybe he's not. Um, but like that's that's what it looks like. Right. And, and we'll see if that's effective. It, time will tell. And there is a precedent for this in ancient history because Pompey the Great f famously sorted out the pirate problem. And if you if you read his propaganda, he was like, you know, he had a war and, and he got rid of the pirate scourge. But in reality, the pirates were like a really hard like enemy for the Roman military machine to to suppress because they were like an insurgency group. Like they were disparate, and you know they they were you know a guerrilla type um enemy and um and what the what pompey really did is he cut a deal with them he said right okay if you stop it you know we'll give you x amount of our grain on a reliable basis if you just stop attacking our bloody ships right so just get you know we'll give you two percent of our our stuff so he paid them off and um and and actually by paying them off that meant that he gave them a stake in the system, which meant that they settled for the first time. And after they settled, you know, you could then try and like influence them because they had something to lose, right? Whereas before they didn't have anything to lose. So in all in all, but in terms of the propaganda and, and the domestic messaging, it was, this did not get revealed, the fact that he'd cut a deal. Like historians have had to extrapolate that. But this is basically the same situation. If you give these people a a way like you have to sometimes give people an off-ramp right that's what they say off <laughs> so um i mean you can't kill them all can you like or can you i don't i mean what do you do like so maybe you, this we got good weapons huh? now you could maybe we got good weapons but you're right you're, you're absolutely right that like there is precedent for each of these types of moves and uh, and one might be better than the other. We don't know. And it might be better in certain countries or contexts than others. But from what I understand in El Salvador, crime has dropped. 
I don't know about like Bukele's Bitcoin stuff. Uh, it might like the thing is El Salvador doesn't really need Bitcoin. And so it's to me, that's a little bit of a tenuous operation. They might find out like if Bitcoin pumps, for example, uh, and goes to like 100K in the near future, maybe it really works out for them but, and he'll look like a genius. But if it doesn't, that could be the thing that takes him down too. It's it's it was a ballsy move. So on that note, let's finish off by talking about the Twitter files because that, that mm-hmm. happened when everyone got distracted with the banking crisis. So it didn't get the, the attention it deserved. And frankly, I watched the whole testimony and it had Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi um, obviously testifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was quite shocked. I, 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 I've actually given evidence at test, like in the UK in a Treasury Select Committee and in a Science Committee. Um, and I, you know, when I gave evidence, not about, I, I actually gave evidence about Bitcoin, not the media. But the um, point is, when I when I I was there with with fellow kind of um, Bitcoin representatives, right? So I was there as the skeptic, and um, I found it to be very civil. Cordial. Like it was a civil yeah. situation, and we don't they do did- civility in America. Civility is a debate tactic. We don't do that. But they did press like I'm not like the MPs were tough on the on the Bitcoin people. It's not like they asked them easy questions, but most of the questions were logical, well researched. Uh, but and, but and not... they wanted and they they were interested in the answer. I bet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not how the, that's not how America works. So that's, I was quite shocked to see that testimony because um, it was it was frightening. <laughs> I mean, those guys were like being like harangued it was absolutely like something you would i mean to treat journalists like that and this whole like so-called journalist thing i mean oh my god how many freelance journalists in the world are there like i just find that sh- well, you're, I know, you're talking I you're talking about that in a country where literally the word journalism is one that can be applied to anybody who wants to be a journalist like we have free speech here we have uh you know the right to the free press, which means that I myself can be a journalist and like in a court of law, if you're, if you're in a court and uh, they question your desire to remain silence on something, that's the kind of thing that can end a court case, right? Like they could call a mistrial on that. They could say that a person uh, that they're, that they weren't given a fair hearing because they questioned your desire to remain silent in front of the jury. Right. And it amazes me that in a world where we have free press, the Congress people, are allowed to question a person's credentials in an industry where there are none needed. Meanwhile, not only are there none needed in that industry, uh, the credential, the people they were questioning the credentials of are seasoned journalists that have been doing the job for 10 and 15 years, maybe more. If you haven't seen this, by the way, uh, it's on YouTube. Go to, uh, go and you can type in like Taibi, Matt Taibi uh, congressional hearing. And that'll bring it up. And it's just, it's an hour and a half, two hours of Democrats trying to get Matt Taibbi and Schellenberger to reveal sourcing and uh, making fun of them and calling them shills. It was, it's really an amazing two hour, uh, two hour testimony. And it makes you, it should make you wonder why the Democratic Party in the US hates the Twitter files. Like what was, what was so, like what to them is so scary about those? That, that really weirded me out. I mean, it was it was 
fascinating in many ways. I mean, I, I thought the name of the committee was a bit silly, like the weaponization. What was it? it was something like the weaponization of media? Or, or something. Well, that's that's a Republican committee. They they developed it's weaponization of government. They developed this committee because uh, in the Republican perspective, the Democrats have begun using the government to to be weaponized against people. And that includes everything from like the January 6th committee uh, to, uh, you know, the the laptop, the Biden laptop stuff to their integration with like, uh, you know, government with Twitter executives and such. So basically what Jim Jordan is doing is he's leading this committee to uncover, uh, you know, the ways in which the Democrats have weaponized U.S. government against the American people. Now, you, you might believe that that's not happening, but that's that's the purpose of the committee. Uh, the stated purpose right and anyway but the point is like i just found it very interesting that like they were even asking them how they voted like last i checked it's an anonymous vote right like i mean you're not supposed to compel i mean i maybe they volunteered that information but um i just just he's been a lifelong democrat there was a lot of stuff that crossed yeah and Anyway, I I was quite flabbergasted by the tone of the whole thing and the um the idea that this is like manufactured in the in the heads of these two guys, um and you know mm. look maybe is is he is a seasoned reporter and I've always found his writing fascinating and and he knows finance he's not an idiot, um an and idiot. Schellenberger, sorry, an idiot, idiot, um. You know, and I, I, I've worked with Schellenberger. I've interviewed him on a podcast. I've, I've, um, you know, interact. I co-authored a piece with him. You know, so I, I know him, and he has integrity as far as I'm concerned. And I think I like his ball busting well, attitude. And and the um, Twitter files speak for themselves, Isabella. Like they, you can go look at them, and you can see what's in those messages and emails. So, like when the Twitter executives uh, were on that same committee. They claim that they did not get like certain communications from the government that are very clearly given to them in the Twitter files. You can go look at them. So like, you know, the Democrats like to use that as like as evidence um, against them. But the reality is you can go look at them. The Twitter files stand for themselves. They speak for themselves. And it's it's a very weird world when I'm watching uh, Congress people go after journalists trying to get sourcing. It was it was a really weird two and a half hours. I've never seen anything like it. And what I thought was interesting was Matt Taibbi, who really has been a lifelong Democrat. He, he's always been a lefty. Really, I think in that committee hearing, realized the level to which that party has lost the plot. And I don't think he really, like he's being put on lists. He's being watched. Um, this has been like a tactic that has has begun occurring to him. And it's, 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 it's unitarily, on one side of the political aisle that has been going after him and journalists. Meanwhile, that group is accusing people like Donald Trump of going after journalists and such. And that's, it's a very weird thing to watch in the U S because the corruption, this type of corruption has like always been sort of under the radar, but now it's like in full view. I mean, let's, let's, let's Will, Will um... says, Will says speculate on why they've lost their minds over this. The answer is Trump. Something happened in 2016. Something happened. But also, let's let's be let's apply critical thinking, right? <laughs> because um, you know why? You know, did Trump go after journalists in the same way? Like, did he? Like, let's 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 try and leave any confirmation bias 
on you know how can how can we argue that he did so he he was very sensitive he didn't like it he did uh, he did eject certain journalists out of his newsroom right uh, out of his press briefings he did no, no. I pre i'm pretty sure he did mm -mm. i think he did mm -mm. I don't think so. Really? Okay, we'll have to fact check that afterwards. But yeah, I, he didn't. I, he, he went. He went after them by criticizing them. Uh, I'm pretty he, sure he banned. Uh -uh. I have a feeling he did. Let's okay, but anyway, let's Google it. Um, <laughs> I, I I seem to have a memory that he did, but um, because a lot of the time, like it is confirmation bias, and if you see it from your own perspective. Perspective. Absolutely not. He had four years of getting bent over and he did virtually nothing. Jemima Kelly, who you know, went to Mar-a-Lago and, and brushed shoulders with him. And I think um, she wrote a really good piece for the FT about um, her experience at Mar-a-Lago and, um, and how she found him quite charismatic, actually. But the, um, I think the point really is he was he was given a really hard time by the press, like way worse than anyone else. Like George Bush obviously had a bad time, but he, he obviously wasn't, everything was so negative that there was, mm. he could have, so, you know, Isabel, out. The, the only thing I find here is that there was an informal press briefing that is being touted as uh, Trump banned certain journalists, but he did not. He just didn't invite them to this informal press briefing. <laughs> Okay. That's snubbed. It. I don't I don't think this happened. So he snubbed. Okay, well, you know, I think I think it's I'm just trying to, you know, be critical minded because often I have an assumption about Trump and then you do the fact checking and you kind of like, oh no, actually you're, what you think is wrong. Um and then I get very confused. So I, you know, I I I had perceived him being a bit mean to the press, but he was very mean but, to the press. He called them enemy, the enemy of the people. Right? Well, there you go. Well, they're yeah. obviously going to be. Did you see Russell Brand on the Bill Maher show? By the way, yes. Again, like that was an interesting interaction because, again, the I don't know. He was like a was it ABC or I don't know which. MSNBC, I think, is what he oh, MSNBC. is what he is what he called out. He said that they're as bad as Fox, but I mean, the reality is Fox is mostly news. Fox has its opinion journalists at night. I don't watch a lot of Fox. The opinion journalists are clearly slanted, but for the most part, most of the day, Fox is news. Just straight so up how news. Much, how much of this is just our kind of cultural, white, like everyone has a filter and we just, naturally it's just human psychology. We, um, we have confirmation you know, see the wrong in others, but not in ourselves. And we we see the, you know, the good in ourselves, but not in others very often, right? And the question really, you know, my hunch is that when you really like look and, and you know, everything for me is a mirror, like you can find anecdotal evidence of both sides doing exactly the same thing that they're accusing each other of. Um, the question is really the scale, like, because it, it just ends up in this kind of endless whataboutism because like, well, you did it, but you did it and blah, 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 blah. Um, so really, I think my conclusion is, is that most of the accusations being um, presented against the left um, and vice versa, 
apply equally, but not in scale. And so maybe one side is being a bit worse than the other. And if you use just pure anecdotal evidence as the, as the rationale for dismissing one side over the other, that's probably not a logical thing to do. So um, that's my impression. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's wrong. I think that I think that in in the I mean like the, the thing is like, yeah, I, this think, is gonna... I think it's wrong for you to think that your side no, is always no no it's 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 not my side it never was my side I uh I was not I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself like a Republican I would I would say that I'm uh a, a pro government anarchist is <laughs> maybe my political position I don't, I don't know how to I don't know how to square that uh that round hole but like. I'm not a, I'm not a right winger, not by any means. But what I watched with uh, Trump was four years of misinformation that if you watched a video of the thing happening and then listened to the reporting, you would know exactly what was said and you would know exactly what was lied about. But most of America would only watch the reporting and would have no idea what was lied about and only what was said by the news. And this is how propaganda works. <laughs> yes, but the the level like the the right didn't the, you you can't know this on, again unless you spent inordinate amounts of time watching watching the uh the source content which i did and the left lost the plot during the trump administration it was it was very different the right and the left are very different uh the right can have its idiocy but the left lost the plot. They went off the reservation. They were, they just went nuts. And there is no, I've never seen anything like it. There's no comparison. There's no equivalency. And, and it's completely unfixable. They believe they've, they've driven half of the American public to believe that their neighbors who they used to barbecue with are Nazis. And there's nothing to be done of it. Nothing. That you can't unconvince people that their neighbors are not Nazis anymore, especially after they ostracized and treated their neighbors the way they did for the last, you know, six years. It's over. So there's no coming back. There's no fixing that fabric. And I think that people know this. And this is why, like, there's a lot of talk about things like civil war in the United States. And it's, uh, and it's, it, it's weird to watch because like, as I see it, there's no fixing it uh, unless Americans shoot each other. <laughs> like that's it. And I don't like that. I think that's awful, but I don't, th I don't see another resolution. And well, that's, that's, that's what really scares me. That's very horrible. And mm -hmm. um, I would, I like to build bridges and I want to, you know, I always want to see, where you can see commonalities and where you can <laughs> try and get people around a table to like share in the one thing that they do have in common. Um, but what surprised me in that hearing was also, I, there was a tape, somebody, one of the um, Congress, is it a congressman? Yeah. Um, one of the congressmen um, played from some guy who worked at this weird I don't know what it's called the um, the propaganda outfit of the State Department, I think, and um, and it's and it, it quotes him sort of saying, "Yeah, yeah, no, we all do propaganda." I was basically the domestic propaganda guy, 
and um, everyone does it. We do it to our own people too, but it's just normal. It's like the narrative that we create, you know, blah, 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 is totally understandable. And I think that to me is the key thing. Like we are living in an internet age where <laughs> people who have any basic curiosity can see beyond the kind of the veneer because it's given people access to do their own research, right? And that's been made a mockery of itself. I mean, to me, the fact that you can use do your own, like, do your own research as a slur is, to me, hilarious. Like, what is wrong with doing your own research? Like, frankly, like, isn't that the whole point of the Enlightenment? Is well, that what's, what's more, what's more interesting about it, yeah. Isabel, is that both sides use it at each other, right? So the left will, in order to verify, like, what I would say is misinformation and conspiracy, will tell the right to do their own research. The right will have already done their own research with original sourcing, but it's not the news stories that the left would use. So like the, the right will give that's them like- really, That's a really good point because I hadn't clocked that. You're the, right. The right will literally give them the video. They'll be like, here's the video of it. And they'll be like, well, the, here's the reporting on the video. And they say, he said that, that, uh, all, that you know, the Nazis are good people. And you're like, yeah, but look at the video itself. Well, I see the reporting on the video. And then- <clears throat> These these uh this do your own research. The belief is that like the original sourcing isn't the best source, but CNN and the New York Times is on the left, and the right believes that the original video is the best source. So you have this like very weird bifurcated reality, and both sides say it to each other. But you see, to prove their point. This is, this is the thing. I am a student of history, of ancient history, especially, and anyone who studied history knows that there is no concrete narrative like reason that history like, there's always historians like finding new angles and saying oh well this primary source actually turns out you can't trust them because that was a propagandist and that that original material that seems like a better source but actually when you look at the like you know the coinage blah 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 like it is a fluid situation like depending on who is speaking when is speaking and there is no common consensus like you know for many years you know, the empire, like Augustus was seen as a baddie, but there is an entire kind of like historic ancient history school that's, that thinks of him as actually being quite good for, for Rome, if not for, if not for Augustus, the whole civilization may have fallen apart into civil, like worse than civil war, just total kind of abandonment of any kind of cultural worth. <laughs> Whereas Augustus was the great restorer and yes, he was, a totalitarian in 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 the eyes of the Roman people, like in the eyes of history, he he did kind of bring a lot of peace and and you know security to people who had been at war for a very long time, and and I think this is the fundamental thing is that people who have any basic understanding of history can see through through these like narratives and see that there is a world of competing narratives where. Um, there isn't a clear-cut concept of truth. Like, that's like the anthropological perspective, you know? it's There is that element of it's their truth that, and we have our truth. And I think, I think that's true. I think that's partly true when narratives are uh, auditory. But I think that that's less true in a world when there's video of everything. So, like... Well, no, it, it isn't, though, because the video can be completely kind of, like, um, also you know, cut, edited and cut in ways where if you have don't see it from a certain perspective, it gives you completely different. Abs and absolutely, Isabel. But I'm just saying like when it comes to, for example, what somebody said, right? Or you're watching a live feed and you, you see somebody say something, um, it's a very different thing 
than this sort of notional like outsourcing of the narrative to the press where the press gets to decide what happened. And since video, what we've learned is either the press has gotten really bad of late or they've always been terrible. And I don't know which one's true. Well, here's, here's, here's something to mull for the for the close of the session, which is that, so I got, I, I totally fell into this deep fake yesterday. Like I, I, cause it was, you know, ah, it was too sensational and, it, I, and obviously it was too good to be true. So You're I. You're a boomer. <laughs> but um but it was quite it was quite sophisticated and um what was it what, it was like some version of the january 6th thing and it was a um like obviously like it had been manipulated to like show nancy like saying something ridiculous she had a mask on you couldn't see her lips and it was so now you have audio deep fakes as well as visual i mean the whole thing is deep fake and like you can um Elliot Higgins who did Bellingcat you know does Bellingcat he had a Twitter uh, thread the other day just showing how easy it is to use mid-journey and AI and all that to create incredibly realistic news shots or like show like a um like a nuclear explosion had gone off in 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 a certain part of the world or whatever it's so easy for these things to travel um and I wonder if in some ways like rather than it being something that the government fears, this whole deep fake thing might be something they're accelerating because it'll it will knock our ability to trust anything online. And if we can't trust online because nothing is like, you know, we don't know if it's real or not, um, that will force us to go back to like one single source of um truth. truth in terms of communication because it's verified and i thought i thought it was very interesting like so elon comes along he does twitter verified right and everyone laughs at him and tells him he's a twat um what an idiot it's never going to work then this week like meta does meta blue like literally copies the whole thing nobody says a word like total and, and by the way facebook is also like laying off thousands of people in really horrific ways no criticism really have you seen any criticism like no one's freaking out about it things but, great Lay everyone but, off. But the point is this verifi like verification thing, that is that is a thing that is gonna have that's gonna be worth its weight in in gold in the era of deep fakes because and so you will either be verified or you won't be verified. And that's how we're going to that's how citizen journalism is gonna die, because um unless they get the approval and the kind of like license that they are verified, and of course, even then. <laughs> You have to trust authority, like because authority could be messing with you. Like you, you, I mean, the potential paranoia is so insane. Well, it it really it, does make you wonder in America what the October surprises are going to be from now on, because I think surprise. Well, in America, we we vote on what November fifth ish, around there, uh, and and we call them October surprises. They're the big things that you know the worst thing that a candidate has released in like you know October. 28th usually to swing the election. Um, and I think if, if someone can make a convincing enough deep fake as to where we cannot verify its validity for a week or two, you could very well have somebody deep fake their way to an election win. 100%. And this is, this is the thing. Like I, I mean, like you could get if I didn't know that Jemima 
<laughs> been to Mar-a-Lago and seen, you know, Donald Trump in the flesh. I mean, there are people out there who would believe he's long been dead. You know, you, you can create these narratives because, you know, so so in terms of like how that's she didn't, going even, she didn't even come say hello. I, I don't think she knew you were in Florida. <laughs> I'm like right next to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> 20 minutes away. She didn't know. She didn't know. Yeah, you tell but, her. Um, but I think what this will do is like in a McLuhan sense, uh, Marshall McLuhan, is that it's going to make us um, that whole globalization, digitization thing. It's going to it's going to totally um, stunt that because we will withdraw to our local groups that we can like see in the flesh and, and know for, for sure. Because you won't be able to, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe a better world. Probably, maybe, but you know, have you heard about the fifteen-minute city thing? Have you heard about that? No. What is that? A city you can walk across in fifteen minutes? So there's this massive thing in the UK right now where, um, for city planners, have come up with this slogan about fifteen-minute cities, and it started off as a as quite a nice kind of urban planning thing, which frankly i don't think it's a bad idea like the idea is that wherever you live you should have within 15 minutes of you like some shops some utility like basic sort of leisure utility whatever accessible green park recreational areas everything you transport hub uh, access etc <clears throat> in my mind that's kind of cool because like you know being near to something is kind of usually desirable right and it creates a sense of village community, and I'm not I'm not opposed to it in that sense. Um, but it's been hijacked a little bit by by the traffic people, but who have decided to use the mantra behind the 15 minute city to um, kill traffic tra um, problems by by limiting how many, like, so there's going to be um, videos watching how many times you leave your specific zone. And if you go out of your zone, like more than like a hundred times a year, you have to pay a surcharge because, um, you know, to, to stop you using these like very specific roads, they want to keep you local as much as possible. So it's supposed to be like a nudge to make sure that if you can, if you need shopping rather than going on the big road to go to the big supermarket, so just, like just the rich people can leave. Yeah. So it's been turned into like the, the it's, it's now a huge thing and everyone is sort of saying, we don't want to live in like, you know, Berlin um, kind of segregation zones and hunger games, you know, that's, um, and, and I just wonder, like, it is, I, I can see both points, but I, I can see both perspectives. Like, on one hand, I, I do genuinely like the idea of having everything nice and near and, and a more villagey life. But on the other hand, I do also feel very angry at the idea that government will will somehow penalise you for how many times you leave your catchment area. So that's pretty evil. Um, yeah, I mean, but don't, don't you think, like, from a city design perspective, though, it is nice to have things with within your reach. Well, that's why you buy a house near those things. Hmm. Like th this, this idea that urban planning is, I don't know. I mean, like <clears throat> this seems to me like a lot of this stuff is solved with like a land value tax. I'm, I'm a big land value tax guy. Yeah, me too, actually. And and I, I just don't understand. Like when I hear this stuff, I'm like, this is all solved with land value taxes. 
you if if everyone were paying for like the development and the best thing to do in a certain area was to put a park that's what would go there so yeah. you know this urban city like the, I, I think this that urban planners are the scourge of our of our world where they believe that they are better at like you know city planning than uh than just sort of the natural uh yeah but you, natural... you live in the country that literally has like roads that are numbers rather than like yeah I'm, I'm not talking about the uk's urban planners like the united states we pump these guys out they yeah. put like roundabouts in the middle of like a minnesota town of like two thousand people like it, it doesn't it's stupid <laughs> like these guys are terrible at planning cities terrible did you did you see that Trump was calling to he's going to build new cities. He wants to like uh, buy loads of land or dedicate lots of some element like some small tiny not very big portion of government land is going to be used to Cities are terrible ideas. Beautiful, I, the most I, beautiful I, cities. The French the French uh the French did it right. I think that cities we've learned throw people into these giant blocks of uh homogenized identity and cause uh cause them to coalesce around absolute stupidity and uh, dumb beliefs. Well, like, you see, the most beautiful cities in the world are the ones that had no urban planning and everything was hodgepodge and crazy, like Venice. Like, that was just like a total free-for-all where everyone just did crazy things. And it's when you try to regulate the planning that the spirit of the city is completely, you know, sucked out of it. Um, so I do agree. And one of the, you hate planners, but I hate like, I really, the whole kind of um, industry that manages uh, building regulations, they piss me off because here in the UK now, there's just no, like every single flat you go to see is the same. It's literally, and this reminds me of Poland. It reminds me of po like communism where there was just like a standard cookie cutter, like, module concept for what people have to live in and that's happened here organically in the uk where no not organically it's actually because of imposed government legislation like, like saying that you have to have a fire door that's x, x amount long and you know and it's led to like completely insane health and safety um rules which mean that you know you're sitting in a nice greek taverna and there's like a wonky little staircase it's really cute and you know that can never, you cannot build something like that because that would never pass health and safety. And yet, and that really pisses me off because like we've got to this level of such protectionism that we will never be able to create interesting or beautiful, um, in, weird, pure things. In America, Isabella, we have school zones where, where if there's a school and school is being let out, every car on the road for like two blocks has to drive 15 miles an hour. Well, Which, here it's, yeah, I mean, here it's 20, so. It, it's it's very, to me, it's very, like, I look at that and I'm like, like, there aren't that many kids that people were were hitting. <laughs> it just wasn't happening. And it's it's interesting to me that, like, we, we have these sort of uh, just giant regulations all over, not just in the U.S., all over the world that are meant uh, just to protect every single person. You know, we we prevent one death a year by making every driver in America uh, drive 15 miles an hour. You know, it just seems incredible to me that we go to those lengths to save, like, uh, to, to not let one bad thing happen and, you know, inconvenience or force everybody to do it at like well, in absolutely lockdown, ridiculous ways. 
That's a bit like lockdown. I mean, lockdown. Oh, that's okay. And then we, I promise you, we will finish then. Lockdown files. Have you been following the lockdown files here in the UK? You have. I have, files. but we don't have time to go into this because I actually have to go. Well, um, we yeah, let's to. let's do the yeah. lockdown because those are the most interesting, I think, of all of these. Like, uh, you know, those the, they they just they're crazy. This the story of how they're released is amazing. If you guys don't know what the lockdown files are, uh, go take a look at them. Uh, we'll talk about them next time because, like, that is to me that's the biggest story out right now. <laughs> and we have Jeremy Vine. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, good night. It's late here, so I'm going to bed. And uh, nice to see you all. Take care. Bye. Buy a house from the Amish in the country. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>